0: Ever since the 1st tick tock of time, you brought order to a world undefined.
1: Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast.
0: Our, our teaching team, team is made up of men and, men and women who
1: love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which, which our, our community, community responds. responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to, to expand, expand in faith, faith, hope, and love. Word that Isaiah son of Emma, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem: In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, "Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob." That Oh house of Jacob, come let us walk into the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord.
0: Yay, and thanks be to Freya for reading that. I was like tearing up. Um, Freya, thank you for sharing your voice with us. And I'm so glad that you are part of our community. Oh of scary talking to adults. I'm normally down with the kiddos, and, you know, I can be way more goofy, and I can make mistakes, and they're just like, oh, yay, great. Um, (laughs) I don't have suckers to bribe you with later, but we'll see. (laughs) I'll have communion to bribe you with later. Um, So it's Advent. Did you guys know that? I don't think we've talked about that yet in the service. But we made it after nearly 40 weeks of ordinary time. We finally have something special to look forward to when we come to church. (laughs) Um, But it's my favorite season of the year um, because you can just be as angsty and as moody and as emotional as you want to. And like we celebrate that. And it's also the perfect time to dive into the prophets. And not just because, you know, chronologically the prophets come before baby Jesus, but if you've ever read the prophets, they're a moody bunch. Um, So this morning we're in Isaiah, as Freya read. um, And this was like one of my bucket list scriptures. Um, I'm sure Steve and Dan and Becky and those who preach, we all have like our lists of, oh, someday I really want to preach on this text. Um, and this was one of them. So it was really fun to just be able to dive into it, not only in Advent, um, but then just in Isaiah. And book of Isaiah, it just starts off with a lot of gloom and doom, like I was reading it to get the context of the passage this morning, and I was like, oh. Oh my gosh, this is sad. It's just like classic prophets, right? It's oracle after oracle of destruction and judgment. And you can't help but wonder, like, is there ever going to be any good news? But then you have brief passages of hope in this beginning part of Isaiah, like our passage today. We get five verses of hope just kind of sprinkled in, kind of like a shimmer of light in the darkness. And this, along with a few others, just kind of help orient us so we don't get lost or drowned out by the woes and the judgments. So our passage today starts off like how most prophetic texts start. It says, the word that Isaiah, son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And this seems like a bit mundane, and it's like, yeah, 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 get to the good stuff. Um, but we actually learn a lot from just this one sentence. Um, we learn that Isaiah... He's a prophet, and he received this word from God. And we learned that his dad's name is Amaz, um, which in Hebrew means strong. So if you're thinking of baby names, that's a kind of cool one. Um, but then we also learned that this prophecy that he's been given is concerning, it's about, and it's for Judah and Jerusalem. And now scholars, they love to argue about timelines and dates, especially with the book of Isaiah because it's a little complicated, right? It seems to cover events that span from the beginning or like the mid-eighth century BCE um, through the end of the sixth century BCE. Um, So quick math, that would give Isaiah about 150 years of active prophesying. So that's probably not likely that Isaiah wrote everything in this book. Um, What probably is more likely is that Isaiah, son of Amaz, wrote most of it. And then there were one or two prophets who followed after him who had sort of similar messages um, and continued these writings. But that's not super important to our text this morning. I only mention it to note where we are at in the history of Israel Um, So this prophecy in chapter 2, written by Isaiah, son of Amoz, and written during the Assyrian expansion slash the fall of the northern king of Israel. I know this is kind of boring. but Stick with me. This is the nerdy stuff that I love, and I'm sure there's at least one other of you out there. Dan, yay. (laughs) Um, But it's before Judah and Jerusalem go into exile, right? So they've They've seen their neighbors in the north um, either go into exile already or they're feeling that pressure, and, like, the empires around them are closing in, so they're on this brink of the unknown. Um, And this exile theme is just looming over them as Isaiah is speaking these words. Um, So he says, In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established as the highest mountain, now this we know, he's speaking about Jerusalem and the temple, which is on Mount Zion, which, as a mountain itself, is nothing really to write home about. Um, I mean, it's a nice mountain, but it's not the highest of all mountains. So all play time. Um, if you're new here, all plays are just a chance for us to get to hear the voice of we and not just me. Um, so what do you think is the significance? that God's mountain and God's house will be raised above all other mountains. Ooh, I like that. Thanks, Cassandra. You can see everything from the tallest mountain. And so God can see the whole world from the tallest mountain. Any others? Mm. Yeah, it feels militaristic and sort of conquering language. Um, That's good. Yeah, and there's definitely militaristic themes at play here. Um, In that time, mountains were spiritual places, and most temples were on mountains because they were closer to the gods, and they were places where the heavens would meet the earth. And so to say that the mountain of the Lord's house would it be raised above all the other mountains and hills? Is to say that Yahweh, the God of Israel, will be established as a true God above all other gods. And in a time when God's people were watching their nation crumble around them and starting to question their God's power, this was an assurance and a message of hope that no matter what happens, Yahweh is the one true God. And with this picture and with this revelation comes this picture that all nations will stream to Yahweh's mountain. And I love this imagery, especially in light of the exile, because the people of Judah and Jerusalem have seen their neighbors and kin in the northern kingdom be deported all across the land. And as the many gloom and doom oracles prophesy, the people of Judah and Jerusalem are next say so they see this coming, but according to Isaiah's vision, in the days to come, this is gonna be reversed. Instead of Israel being scattered across the nations, the nations will all stream to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the mountain of God. And I love this verb that he uses here in Hebrew, it's nahar, and used almost exclusively in prophetic literature and always to describe the movement of rivers of light and of radiance. And so as I close my eyes, I can imagine just this mountain towering over all other mountains with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation caught up in this divine current flowing towards the place where Yahweh dwells. I think that's pretty powerful. And now we can spend an entire message on just the significance of that, um, because that's weighty. But I'm going to continue, because next, Isaiah describes this song that the people are going to sing. Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. There's a, an entire collection of psalms called the Songs of Ascent, these are the songs that the Israelites would sing as they traveled up the mountain to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. And they were all about going up and meeting God and responding to God's movement in their lives and in their history. And here in this passage, in this song of Isaiah, we see the same pattern of going up to approach God and then encountering God and then responding to God. On this mountain, God will teach us his ways. But it's not just a passive action of us sitting in desks or in pews and just listening to what God is saying, but it's an active, authoritative teaching that's all-consuming. Instead of using the common Hebrew word for learning or teaching, Isaiah uses the word Yara. And its first meaning is to throw or shoot or cast, like you throw a rock or you shoot an arrow or you cast Pharaoh's army into the sea but it also connotes authoritative direction, um, like those in places of authority or influence directing others in what to do. And so it's in this active authoritative teaching on God's mountain that we are thrown into God's way of living and cast into God's current of justice and love. And so we can't help but to respond to God by walking in her paths. Isaiah then describes God's mountain as kind of like a lighthouse, right? Emitting instruction and direction and wisdom into the world. Um, And on this mountain, Yahweh will be judge, arbitrator, and king. And this is one of the central themes of Isaiah, that God is king. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because the kings of Israel really screwed up, and now they're facing the violence and power of the kings of the surrounding nations. And so these messages of judgment and hope both revolve around this proclamation that God is king and humans are not. So if you have a Bible, if not, you can just listen because I'm going to read it. But turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Now this is centuries before Isaiah. And, you know, Israel has settled into the promised land. They've been ruled by a series of judges. And now Samuel, the last judge, is nearing the end of his life. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like other nations. That same word, govern, is used in Isaiah when he says that God is judge. Govern and judge, it's the same word. Um, But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. um, And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel goes back to the people and he's like, okay, if you really want a king, here's all the terrible stuff that they're going to do to you. But the people refused to listen. We're in Verse 19 now. They refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we're determined to have a king over us so that we may be like other nations and that our king may govern over us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and set a king over them. So Samuel said to the people of Israel, Each of you go home. So here Israel decides that they don't want God as their king anymore. They want a human king so they can be just like all the other nations on the earth. And so who does Samuel slash God appoint to be the first king of Israel? Saul. And does that go very well? No, it does not. Samuel warns the people again in chapter 12 in his farewell address that if you and your king follow God, that's great. You're not going to have a problem. But if you ignore his commands, then it's not going to be that much fun for you. So if you continue reading through chapters 12 and 13, you see that Saul royally screws this up. And he sets Israel on a trajectory of good and bad, but mostly bad kings um, that eventually lead them into exile, where we are at in Isaiah. Um, So when Isaiah proclaims that Yahweh is king and Yahweh is judge and Yahweh is arbitrator, he's challenging these established systems of power and bringing hope to a people on the brink of exile. He's saying, human kings let us down and lead us into some really bad places. And that's a good thing, because it reveals our desperate need of something greater, of something divine. Because when Yahweh is our king, he rules with justice, peace, and love. And when Yahweh is our king, the people beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And when Yahweh is king, nations do not lift up sword against nation, and neither do they learn war anymore. Prophets love poetry. I can only imagine Isaiah sitting around being really angsty about Israel and the world and the corruption of humanity, and so he writes this poem about how God's world is going to be. This line, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Okay, I'm going to attempt to read it in Hebrew, so give me a little grace, um, but I think it's really cool. So it reads, So I'm going to read that again and close your eyes and listen to just the sounds tu har botam le it tem tehem la me rot. And when I read that I hear that the repetition of hard consonances, and it evokes the sound of someone beating a sword into a ploughshare or a spear into a pruning hook. And I think that's pretty cool. But I wanna take it one step further. This verb for beat is the same word used in Deuteronomy chapter nine, when Moses discovers the golden calf Israel had made for themselves in the wilderness. It says, then I, Moses, took the sinful thing you made, the calf, and burned it with fire and crushed it or beat it, grinding it thoroughly until it was reduced to dust. And I threw the dust of it into the stream that runs down the mountain. This is what we will do with our weapons, our idols of violence, war, and power. We will crush them, we will beat them, and we will turn them into tools of peace, produce, and prosperity. I like that. That's a good word. But I'm going to take this yet another step further. Because when certain words are used in Scripture... Oftentimes, the author's hyperlinking it to the first time it was used. I know Steve talks about this and does this sometimes. So I was intrigued as I was reading this passage. You know, when is the word plowshare first used in Scripture? So, I know this is a long shot, but does anybody know? Except Will, I already told him. And kind of, Joe. What? What? Genesis is, nope, after that, but good guess. Nope, not departure from Egypt, but another good guess. Okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> well, let's turn back to 1 Samuel. Hopefully you didn't close your Bible. But 1 Samuel chapter 13. Ding, ding. So here, Saul's king, Right? And it's right after Samuel warns Israel about the dangers of having a human king. And one of the first things Saul does is lead Israel into battle with the Philistines. So, 1 Samuel 13, verses 19. Um, Now there was no smith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, "'Ah, the Hebrews must not make swords or spears for themselves.'" So all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshares, their mattocks, their axes, their sickles. And the charge was two thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and one third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads, whatever that is. Um, and I can only imagine the Philistines. You know, they're about to go to the war to war with um, the Israelites, and they're like these silly Hebrews. Of course we'll come, we'll sharpen your, uh, your farming tools. We'll take your money because we're just gonna kill you tomorrow anyways. This will be an easy fight. Um, but then verse 22, on the day of the battle, neither sword nor spear was to be found in possession of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. Well, except Saul and his son, Jonathan, they had them. Um, so the Israelites, they get a king, They go to war, but they don't have any weapons, so they take their plowshares, their pruning hooks, and they sharpen them into weapons of war, violence, and destruction. So let that just sink in for a moment. When we cling to human kings, leaders, and presidents, we are always led into war, violence, and division. Because the nations of the world have always been, are now, and will always be fascinated with military power. As one scholar writes, there's something exhilarating about brandishing a sword or riding in a chariot, thereby enhancing one's power and transcending one's human limitations. It feels quasi-omnipotent. And there's something intoxicating about shooting arrows or throwing spears thereby projecting power over ever greater distances one feels quasi omnipresent there is something godlike about warfare but when isaiah declares that swords will be beaten back into plowshares and spears will be beaten back into pruning hooks not only is he deriding the people of israel for their trust in weapons and military alliances But he's proclaiming that when God is king, when Yahweh is king, God will reverse the patterns of violence and division in the world. When Yahweh is king, he will reverse the patterns of violence and division in the world. No longer will we lift up the idols of swords and weapons against one another, but God and God's kingship will be lifted up for all to see For all to stream to and be transformed by. This my friends is the good news. This is what we hope for in the season of Advent and this is the light that we anticipate in the dark. Isaiah concludes this oracle of hope with an exhortation to the people of Israel. Come wherever you are broken weary and afraid Let us walk in the light of the Lord. If we walk in the way of the world, in the ways of human rulers, there's no telling what disaster will strike, what judgment we will evoke upon ourselves. But Yahweh is King, and if we walk in his ways, there's nothing to fear. And this is the same exhortation I'm speaking over us today. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us interrupt these patterns of violence, division, and greed in this world, and let us interject the justice, peace, and love of God. For just as Israel needed the Philistines to beat their plowshares into swords, God needs us to beat the swords into plowshares. God needs ordinary peacemakers like us to regularly practice beating these weapons of violence and division into tools of peace and togetherness. God needs ordinary disciples like us to regularly name and transform systems of oppression into systems of love and equity. And God needs ordinary people like us to regularly look for the streams of light in the darkness and reflect it